This program is a member of the DVR Podcasting Network, found at dvrpodcast.com. All right, I'm back for good. Back for good. Well, uh, congratulations to you. You're doing the first ever podcast that I am completely drunk, so enjoy that. (laughs) But not the last. It's just the first. The Film List. Got a list? Send it in to Heath, thefilmlist at gmail.com. Hi, Matt Murdick. I'm filling in for Heath Solo for this special and surprise edition of The Film List where we're going to be counting down our top five best and top five worst scenes of Season 7 of Game of Thrones. And folks, if you haven't seen Season 7 of Game of Thrones yet, I mean, what are you doing? Why are you even here? I mean, the film list has always been about Game of Thrones since the very first season when we had the Emergency Ned podcast, which I was a part of. I mean, go watch season seven and then come back so that what I say and what my co-host for this particular podcast, Bubba from the Joffrey of Podcasts and the Double P Podcast Network, he is the founder of both. That's Bubba at Fit and Trim. That's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M at Fit and Trim on Twitter, Bubba, he is going to be joining me to count down his list because this is what we do on the film list. We count down lists. Bubba, thanks for joining me. The very first question that I have for you, because we do have to get down to some of these very intricate Game of Thrones issues. Would you rather be the toothbrush for the hound, Jamie Lannister's bath towel, or the hand towel in Kyburn's lab? These are pressing questions. Well, thank you so much, Matt. This is Bubba Solo here on the film list. And let me say, anything to do with Guyburn, I'm there, baby. Wow. You'd, you'd really want to be Kyburn's hand towel in his lab. Because I'm thinking, you know, like the hound. Uh, the hound's toothbrush oh, sounds really? appealing to me because of chicken. <laughs> yeah, but old chicken, old chicken isn't as good. I'm talking Kyburn. Think about the things he's touching. He's touching candies to give out to his little, his birds, his little spies. He's also touching uh, dead corpses. So most likely there's not any germs on this dead corpse that I'll be fine with. You know, I think that'd be fun. <laughs> He, he does, you know, he's around a lot of drugs. Who knows of the contact high I would get being Kyburn's hand towel. Yeah, I'll tell hand you. Hand towel man. to the hand of the king. That's me. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Hand towel to the hand of the king. Hey, buddy, what's going on with the Double P Podcast Network? Please tell us a little bit about it. Well, on Facebook.com slash Double P Podcast, that's the word double, the single letter P, the word podcast, plural, Facebook.com slash Double P Podcast. We cover a whole bunch of things, but what's frustrating for many listeners is it's not in a clear, concise list form. It's rambling all over the place. We cover Twin Peaks, The Strain, Game of Thrones, Ash versus Evil Dead, kind of anything that's happening, we cover. And right now, we're in the long winter, the long winter as we wait for the final season of Game of Thrones. And so I'm so excited to be here honored to be uh, in the thing that got me into podcasting, and that was that Emergency Film List podcast. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, great. Yeah, the the Film List uh, has always been into the whole Game of Thrones thing, and of course the Film List 
is a part of the DVR Podcast Network. There's lots of casts at the DVR Podcast Networks covering lots of great shows, including Game of Thrones, which has taken over Podcast Winterfell for myself. And you can find all of those casts at DVRPodcast.com. Also consider becoming a patron at Patreon to support the network. You can find more info about that or make a pledge at Patreon.com slash DVR. I have more questions, more pressing questions for you, Bubba, before we get into our list of our best five scenes and our worst five scenes. Or in my case, which I kind of cheated, my f- best favorite scenes in terms of five and my least favorite scenes in terms of five. But uh, this question does absolutely need answering. All right. Does, does Kyburn look like the mortician, deeply sorry for your loss, but also thinks that Mahogany would really show how much she meant to your family. Kyburn, of course, does. And he is upselling that mahogany. You know, <laughs> the family is looking at their bank account saying, eh, let's just put it in an old pine box. But he's upselling. Kyburn, he's working there at six feet under. He's doing his job. Right on. Now, the last pressing question before we get into our lists is does Braun look like the guy who knows a guy that can make your problem go away? You know, probably I would say that anytime I go out on uh, truck stops, Braun's there. <laughs> he's driving an 18 wheeler rig. Uh, he's telling me 10, four good buddy, but he's also, uh, you know, he's definitely needs the shower. So, uh, Braun is great. He's wonderful. Uh, I, uh, he stores several coins in the wrinkles in his face. I love him. Right on. I love Braun too, uh, which is going to make it even harder when he finally goes. Don't you think? Yeah, let's go. Start <laughs> killing people, Game of Thrones. Let's do this. Let's do this. Everybody's got to die. Uh, let's get into this. We're going to do our... Top five best and worst. We're counting down from five to one, our fifth best to our absolute best, and our fifth worst to our absolute worst. Or as I said, for me, favorites and least favorites. Um, Let's just start with number five, counting it down. You're going to find, folks, that all of my favorites, almost all of my favorites, are completely Aria-related because if it isn't Aria, then it's just stupid. And... Therefore, uh, everything I do in in terms of Game of Thrones is about Arya. My uh, uh, who? You're not talking about a girl, are you? Or are uh, you talking about no one? I'm talking about both a girl and no one, uh, and someone who seems to, at least in this season, found a little bit of her starkness back. But actually, my fifth favorite scene doesn't have much to do with Arya. It's just kind of a little bit related in a way because we circle back to the home where the Hound and Arya met a family and then the Hound robbed the family. And the family had nothing left when winter came and the father had to take the daughter's life and then take his own life because there was just no hope for them. I really love this, this is your favorite, Matt. You're depressing us already. What's well, going but, on? 
but the, the, what makes it my favorite is the fact that you get this emotional feeling because, you know, I'm all about feeling. I'm not about prognosticating or, or about predicting or anything. This was a lovely character moment for me in season seven. We had the Hound coming to realization that he had actually done wrong. Something that the Hound probably, you know, we've seen him as kind of a victim in certain ways, at least in terms of his brother. But for the first time, he sees himself as the person who is creating victims in my mind. And that really stuck with me emotionally. It was, it was probably the, definitely the best scene in the episode opener for me. I really love the Hound dealing with that and the way that he, because of whatever, because of uh, the, the character that, that was the Septon that helped him realize that things aren't uh, all just me or everyone else, he, he finally came home and, and realized that things were not the way he intended uh, or the way that he wished now that they could be. He had a lot of regret. And I honestly believe that that kind of vulnerability is what allowed him to see the vision in the flames. I, I've, I've, I've always felt like that all of these people who see things in the flames or who are able to do all of these great things in the name of the Lord of the light do so in their absolutely most vulnerable moments. And here we had one of the hounds most vulnerable moments. I really love that. Now, Matt, you said you were not in the prognosticating game. But is it possible you like this scene because it proves that the Hound is great at prognosticating? Earlier, what was it, season four, he said these people be dead come winter? And he was right. <laughs> His prophecies are right up there with Melisandre's. Good work, the Hound. The Hound that was promised, brilliant. I love it. I love it, too. Uh, that's a good point, Bubba. I really appreciate the fact that uh, you brought that up just to, to make it feel like that I'm not weighing in on people's predictions. That's great. Now, now, uh, do you think Arya back in season four, when they visited this cottage where this father and his daughter lived, when the hound was like, come winter, they'll both be dead. I don't remember the scene exactly. Did Arya suddenly say, spoiler alert, hello? <laughs> Arya did not say that because Arya didn't oh. want us to get that until Dave and Dan decided that that would be so. Uh, but that's really all I have to say about that scene. What do you have for your number five best scene of season seven of Game of Thrones, Bubba? Well, I don't know if Heath Solo knows that you and I are taking over the film list. We take over so many podcasts. And, and when he listens to this, he might think, well, wait, was Matt the one who just totally sh took over and shanghaied my podcast? And let me put it this way. Tell Heath, I want him to know it was me. Oh. My fifth best moment of Game of Thrones season seven was Lady Olena. Because like you, Matt, I love emotion. And of course, my favorite emotion, spite. And here's this woman... <laughs> The Queen of Thorns, she's nicknamed, who is throwing out spite, throwing out zingers, even as she knows she is going down. I'll drink your poison. Now I'll spit some poison out at you, Jamie Lannister, and let you know that, hey, your son, his grace, King Joffrey, first of his name, first in some of our hearts, I killed him. 
loved it. That's a great moment. That's the way you end an episode. You have to end an episode with power, with emotion, with spite. Wonderful. I love it. That's the fifth best moment in Game of Thrones season seven. Wow. Right on. That's a great moment, too, because Jamie was in so much denial there for a moment. He he just I mean, here here's a guy that doesn't really believe that Tyrion did it. But for that to come at him probably from left field because he would have had no idea. Um, I loved his uh, facial response to that. I loved uh, the way that Queen of Thorns just dished it out. It's like, you know, if this is my last moment, then I'm going to make it count. Uh, just like you said, the, the spite was fantastic. And let me also say... You know, I don't know how many of us have been with our grandparents when when and if they have to pass on and leave this world. But there is nothing better than being with a grandparent who spends her dying moments not teaching you any lessons, not, you know, saying how much they cared about you, but instead attacking your significant other. She is also just calling out Cersei. Just calling out Cersei in front of her boy toy, Jamie. Love it. This is the way, you know, this is the way I want to go. I'm going to start writing terrible things about our listeners' significant others that, Matt, you can read <laughs> out uh, when I leave this mortal coil. It's a, it was great. It was wonderful. She died as she lived, pissed off. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Me too. Uh, it was a great way for the Queen of Thorns to go out. But on the flip side, we have to go to the worst. No. Do we have to? Oh. We, we really do. We have, we have to do these countdowns going straight from the absolute uh, towards the absolutes. And um, Bubba, because uh, your notes on my uh, little document that I gave to me is rather cryptic, I would like for you to explain what your fifth worst uh, scene in Game of Thrones Season 7 would be? Well, um, it's okay. Matt, you're going to have to lay in a beat when I talk about this. We've had the War of Five Kings. Here's the worst of five scenes in Game of Thrones Season 7. It goes like this. I'm in love with a Stark like you. We push and pull like Lannisters do. Although my heart is falling too. I'm in love with your body, and last night's Ned Heads with Ned's head was in my bed. And then my bed sheets smell like a burnt sept. Every day I'm discovering something new. I'm in love with your body, and I, let me say, Ed Sheeran might be in love with your body, but I am filled with hate for Ed Sheeran appearing in Game of Thrones. Now, I am going to go way off the board here, Matt. Does everybody, listeners, do you remember... When you first saw a little movie called Star Wars A New Hope, there was like, who is this Luke Skywalker? I've never seen him before. Oh, he must be Luke Skywalker. Who is this? That's Princess Leia. I've never seen her in anything. Who is who is Han Solo? He had never been in anything. Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're saying the actor who played Obi-Wan had been in a lot of movies? I didn't see it. I'm a kid. Because we didn't know those actors – they really became the characters. And let's be completely honest. Many of our viewers of Game of Thrones, Kit Harrington hadn't been in anything before. Maisie Williams hadn't been in anything before. So they're them. We don't, we don't even know 
Maisie Williams' name. So we know Arya Stark's name. And so when you put somebody so recognizable in a scene that takes us out of the suspension of disbelief that we're in Westeros, even if he isn't saying or doing much other than singing in his annoying voice, that ripping me out of my suspension of disbelief and putting me at the MTV Music Awards instead of there in Westeros, nothing against Ed Sheeran except everything. Everything against him. Seeing him in that scene, my number five worst scene of Game of Thrones season seven. Well, I have to admit, Bubba, that that made my honorable mentions for oh. this scene, which would have placed it like at sixth. Just one behind yours, possibly. Oh, I, I don't know about that. Honorable mention. Ed Sheeran doesn't have honor. No, you, Ed, you, Ed Sheeran, yeah. are a man without we, honor. We should and apparently per- a man without a comb, too. Come on, should, Ed. We should perhaps call it the dishonorable mention as far yeah, as this amen. goes. Yeah, there we go. And and again, I'm going with favorite and least favorite scenes, mostly more than best and worst for me. And I'm sure you are in, in to some degree because everything here is subjective. We all love Game of Thrones, and I really can't say that there were bad, bad, bad scenes in Game of Thrones. You might disagree with me, but I really can't say that there were bad, bad scenes in any of Game of, uh, Game of Thrones season seven. But uh, for me, my fifth worst was actually the whole montage with Bran and Sam and Bran seeing the the marriage of Rhaegar and Lyanna um, between the, the, the Rhaegar bad wig, which I, I just felt like everybody was going to confuse him with Viserys, <laughs> uh, to this whole nephew and aunt thing, getting it on at the same time. Um, the emotion of that uh, was just like, oh, come on, man. I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get into it because we knew, you know, four episodes, at least four episodes before when the Septon who had, had married Rhaegar, and that was where the revelation was. That was the place where we learned the actual information. And yes, the characters do have to go through the paces of actually getting that information themselves. But did we really have to dress it up with this huge, overly redundant montage that was just sick in the end of things when you look at it from a certain perspective? What are you saying, Matt? Are you saying that it's a big turnoff that Jon Snow has ant in his pants? <laughs> Terrible. Thank God I'm not here all week, folks. Please do no. not unsubscribe to the film list based on these terrible jokes. I, you know, I didn't mind it so much. I am a big Bran Stark lover and possibly Bran Stark apologist. So the fact they're getting him more involved in the show, even in what I would call is awkwardly staged scenes and moments like you're talking about, I didn't feel that kind of hatred towards it, Matt. So uh, I'm sorry that I can't, I can't get in the bus with you. I can't drag this scene down to where it needs to be, down into the seven hells. Bubba, uh, this is something, I mean, you and I have been friends for a long time, and this is something that we really need to talk about. The way that you lash out against my opinions really makes me feel uncomfortable. I, I'm one of these people that just cannot take, uh, you know, the fact that, that someone just wants to 
absolutely rail on me the way that you have so strongly just did in terms of my opinion. I don't, I, I it, it's, it's something that you need to be, I feel like we need some kind of perhaps, you know, just some kind of intervention here because your anger has built up over the last couple of years. And, and, and now I'm frankly feeling uncomfortable with you talking about my opinions this way. Listen to me. Uh, I think we need a safe word to calm me down. And so just say, Asante, and then I'll calm down and I'll, I'll go to my happy place and I won't be so angry. So I, I apologize, Matt. <laughs> That's great. That's great, buddy. Uh, speaking of uh, all things Game of Thrones, uh, let me ask you this. Yeah. If you put a top hat on Mace Terrell, would he then look like the tail side of a collectible coin? Oh, Matt. Matt, now I assume you're talking pre-Septive Baylor blow-up. I was going to say, if you put a top hat on Mace Terrell now, the hat would kind of ask, act as a, uh, uh, a, a ashtray. I'm saying that uh, Mace Terrell, <laughs> uh, he sang great. He barely had any scenes with his children or his mother, the Queen of Thorns. Uh, he had a cool look. Uh, give me a couple of years, I'll rock that look. <laughs> On the other hand, you just talked about singing. Yeah. Does Hot Pine does Hot Pie look like the guy who can perform the entire national anthem with just his hand and armpit? Oh man, yeah. Thank God you said armpit. Who knows where else Hot Pie could put that hand and make some sounds? <laughs> I mean, Hot Pie. <laughs> I'm not saying that Hot Pie, uh, you know, works at the end of the crossroads. I'm saying that he, he he's just gained weight. <laughs> There's no joke there. He's, you know, I've gained. Look, I broke my foot. I put on about ten pounds. So I, I know what Hot Pie is going through. It's it's tough. Uh, sounds, you know. Th- trust me, he's making sounds. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Okay, but does Hot Pie actually look like the guy sitting next to you at the Benihana who elbows your side and with wide eyes says, it's showtime when the cook starts to light the onion volcano? <laughs> the onion night volcano. All right. What is dead may never fry. Um, uh, boy, yes, yes. I say yes to everything now. We've got to stop <laughs> this hatred between us, man. <laughs> Very good, brother. Uh, let's get back to our best and worst. We're up to number four here. And, oh boy, me and you are just going to go round and round on this because I see that my best number four is actually your worst number four, if my notes are telling me correctly. Oh, wow. And so we're going to have a discussion about this. So let's, let's just get into this. I loved the Aria and Nymeria reunion. I thought it expressed everything that is about both of those characters. Fans of the books have wanted an Arya and Nymeria reunion forever. And we finally got that in season six fulfilled. And the fact that Arya and Nymeria parted ways yet again, but both with an understanding of who each other was. I felt like that in that moment, Arya became more stark than she had been in many years. And oh. she also realized no. that Nymeria had become just as independent as she had been. Oh, please, please. All right, Matt. Uh, I agree with your first sentence where you said the scene really showed the best of both of their characters, meaning that 
the scene showed Arya being wishy-washy again. Wait, am I a killer? Am I a sweet Stark? Am I going to King's Landing? Am I going home to Winterfell? And it really, to me, showed more consistently with Nymeria's character, meaning I'm just going to appear and then disappear and never be seen again. Oh! I want to tackle this from a different perspective before I, I knock down more of your – I want to say points to be nice, but I'll say craziness. Uh, I go to the multiplex. I don't just watch Game of Thrones. And this summer, I watched this great documentary entitled War for the Planet of the Apes. And in this movie, I saw realistic-looking apes riding horses, shooting guns, speaking English, uh, interacting with human beings. And these are completely photorealistic apes. I turn on Game of Thrones, and I see what looks like a really bad stretch job on some real-life wolves to make them the size that dire wolves should be. Now, let's go back to it. Game of Thrones in the first season, they didn't have all the money in the world. They used real dogs. Those dogs took forever to do anything. They were slowing the production down. Game of Thrones comes back for a second season. They're like, we can't do these dogs. They slow things down. They're blowing our budget. So we'll just get some real wolves. We'll film them against some green screens and then insert them into scenes. It didn't ever really look especially realistic like the dogs, excuse me, the wolves were there in the scenes with the actors. But the, the production was no longer slowed down waiting for a dog to hit its mark, for example. But because it didn't look that believable – and because it was so difficult to kind of make it look believable, the dire wolves started appearing less and less on the show. But I understand, you know, season two, season three, season four even, you have to do it because the show at that time had yet to become the number one show on the planet and can just print money. But at a certain point, I'm looking at you, season five, season six, and this season seven. You've got all the money in the world. If we can hire a CGI company to make computer apes that look as great as they look, even if you don't have the dire wolves in many scenes. At this point, you need to forget about filming a wolf on a green screen and inserting it into a scene because that's so hard to make look real. And just get some computer-generated wolves like those computer-generated apes. And yes, I don't know the true budget story about this. I have no idea how much it really cost to have them build this 3D model and animate it and all and make the lights match, you know, the lighting match and all this stuff. But I see these direwolf scenes nowadays, and specifically this one between Arya and Nymeria and Nymeria's new pack of direwolves and wolves, and I just think that's the fakest looking thing I ever saw. So on a technical aspect, I hated it. Then, if you have a character split from a dog uh, – excuse me. I keep saying dog. People get upset. If you have this character split from her direwolf, that direwolf has to return and do something meaningful. Uncle Benjamin, yes, he's a human being, but he disappeared in the third episode of season one. Uncle Benjamin reappears, and you may say he didn't do much. He saves Bran and Mira from an attack. He does something. His return has moments. His re return is a bit of a reveal. It's like, aha, he passes on knowledge. 
Now, admittedly, in season seven, he dies like a punk. But when Uncle Benjamin returned, he had a story purpose. It was a moment. This almost felt like we were just checking off a box. You know, Arya said goodbye to Nymeria. At some point, we got to get them have some scene together. Let's just check a box. We need, she she had already turned around towards Winterfell based on her conversation with Hot Pie. What was the point of this? This was heartbreaking. I thought that when we saw Nymeria again, maybe Nymeria, like Uncle Benjamin, would be saving a Stark. Instead, I saw a scene that visually took me out of it with poor effects and emotionally didn't connect with me. So I'm sorry, Arya and Nymeria reunion, my fourth worst scene, Game of Thrones season seven. Bubba, I, I, I really need you to calm down. I mean, I mean, I'm serious. I need you to calm down. You are lashing out against animals. Yep. You are lashing out, and 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 this is making me extremely uncomfortable. It's 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 disconcerting. It's scary. I I just don't know who you are anymore. I I, I don't know who you are anymore. You you're attacking wolves. Oh, granted, Listen, you CGI want you inflated want... wolves. I I, gra- I I grant you, C- CGI inflated wolves. But I, I can't help but feel like I need to report you to PETA CGI. Listen to me, Matt. You want me to be nice and sweet? That's not me. That's All not right. you. And like Nymeria, I'll walk away as if that makes any friggin' sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about we go to your best scene instead then? Maybe you'll feel a little more confident about that one. All right. Now, I think this is a moment that for many of our listeners, they may disagree with. And so I want your feedback. Once again, you mentioned our Twitter handles. I'm at Fit and Trim on Twitter, F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M, at Fit and Trim on Twitter. Please, I, I, I understand everybody's point, and I'll attack you as hard as I'm attacking my um, <laughs> double M, Matt Murdock, right now. But, Matt, when season six ended, everybody in the world said, oh, well, Cersei's screwed. Cersei's screwed. Look at Daenerys' army. Look at her dragons. This is – it's game over, man. The writers, because I'm not sure how much, if any of this, comes from our good buddy George R.R. R. Martin. The writers had to figure out a way to, quote-unquote, make it a fair fight. In the beginning of Season 7, in my opinion, was the best part of Season 7 because I thought they came up with really smart, intriguing twists to make it an even playing field, a.k.a. get Cersei and her side take, you know, get a couple of victories in on Queen Daenerys. Them with the sea battle, them with the uh, giving up of Casterly Rock, and then destroying Daenerys's fleet by Casterly Rock, them taking over Highgarden, the Lannister forces, and outsmarting Daenerys's forces there. I thought that was brilliant. And who was the one to blame in the end? How did the story explain this? They went with a guy I like to call Double T. Double T? Thick-headed Tyrion. Tyrion had to be responsible for these L's on Team Daenerys' side. Team Daenerys doesn't really have a true military leader. And Tyrion, even though so many book readers, so many show watchers love his intelligence, loved his intelligence, 
all these L's were put on his plate. And I thought that was brilliant. I thought it leveled the playing field. I thought it made for great twists. And I think the reason why the first three episodes, excuse me, four episodes of season seven are so strong is because of how they allow, quote unquote, the bad guys like Cersei to win and cause dissent between Daenerys and her hand of the queen, Tyrion. I, I thought that was brilliant writing, brilliant setup. People didn't like Tyrion getting outsmarted, but I thought story-wise it made a lot of sense. So my number four best moment is kind of a bunch of moments, and that's team, Queen Cersei, Team Cersei, getting over on Team Daenerys. I loved all of them. Wow, Bubba. I, I mean, you really shocked me here because I, while I thought that, that, you know, CGI wolves might be the extent of your hatred, now you're now you're picking on dwarves. Um, I, I, I just I don't I don't understand it. Um, I, I feel like that uh, these moments were, in fact, great. I actually love the fact that we saw some, uh, you know, vulnerable moments in Tyrion's decision making. Uh, he planned very well for the Battle of the Blackwater. And because of that, you know, he, he, he afforded the, our, our great King Joffrey. As you, Folks, go listen to the Joffrey podcast. You'll just understand how wonderful King Joffrey is and how important it was that Joffrey actually appointed Tyrion in this sacrificial position <laughs> in planning the, the, the exactly Battle of the Blackwater. Right. But regardless of that, uh, you know, I, I did love the vulnerability of that. I think that that's a great scene, uh, a great collection of scenes choices, uh, because um, I, the whole time during the first four episodes of this season seven, I was just like going, Tyrion's game, it's gone. He gone. His game Heck. gone. I mean, right. he, he, you know, I, I thought and I thought that was a great twist. And uh, like you said, the writers naturally had to find some way to even the odds a little bit. Uh, and they managed to do so between the White Walkers and between Tyrion's failures. But I, it does, uh, it really made me question uh, Tyrion in a way that I never had in the television show questioned him before. Uh, we could speak on, maybe on a different level on the books, but it, for as far as the television show goes, um, Tyrion really looked like a complete idiot and it made me wonder why Daenerys wasn't throwing him out of the highest tower on Dragonstone <laughs> yeah let me let me say this that I was so tough on the fact that these direwolves I found they haven't made a way to make them seem believable but that said they also haven't found a way to make uh, Peter Dinklish's accent seem believable either so you know they are they got some uh, tough ones in there Oh my goodness! He's anti-American. He's anti-dwarf. He's anti-wolf CGI. Uh, we just don't know what to do with this guy here. Uh, Masande, Masande, Masande—that's a safe oh, word. I'm in my uh, happy place. All right, sorry. Uh, all right. Well, let me get you riled up because one of the things that really bothered me—my fourth worst scene of season seven—one white conveniently doesn't fall over when the White Walker is killed. Why is a White Walker dragging around somebody who isn't part of his clan? I mean, what's the point of that? What, awkward. And, and, awkward. How do you think that, that White feels when he, like, he sees everybody else drop and he's like, right. uh, whoops. Well, you know, he should have just pretended to fall too. Like, yeah, that's me. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm dead too. Yeah, I, it, it's, just, it's just like, does this guy just 
see the other ones and just tag along and said, screw you, Night King. I'm not yours anymore. I want to follow <laughs> this guy around. It doesn't seem to me that any of the white, uh, any of the whites have any kind of consciousness other than being controlled. So if this one white walker is running around with his little control guys, with his little puppets, how did this guy end up there? And, and what, who's controlling him to follow it? Why wouldn't that person be, why wouldn't that walker be aware of the fact that this white was being captured? It, 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 it made no sense. It just conveniently fit something that I think you're going to criticize a little later on in, in terms of the plot to convince Cersei that the threat is real, right? So what you're implying is that Jon Snow and his, you know, band of seven samurais, his, his seven snowmurais going out looking for one single zombie, one single white that they can show, hey, look at this danger we've got. And they arrive upon a situation where conveniently, like in a matter of seconds, all the bad guys are destroyed except one. How convenient that is. Yeah, it was uh, contrived might be a word. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of some of the group that was in that, does Beric Dondarrion look like a former special forces guy who is now trying to sell you the latest and greatest tactical flashlight that won't break? Even when he throws it from a five-story tower or rolls over it with a tank. Amen. He, 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 his voice, admittedly, is not like that guy. But I'm saying if the guy who you know cuts a, a rowboat in half and then uses his special <laughs> you know, uh, formula to stick it back together and then go rowing, <laughs> you know, or puts a screen door on the bottom of his boat, he, he, that's, that's the look Barrick is going for. But does Jamie Lannister, and this is a very important question, does Jamie Lannister look like the guy who walks up to your table and points to an empty chair and says, is anyone using this? And before you can even respond, he picks up the chair and says, thanks, Ace, gives the whole table a wink and a smile and walks away whistling the song Layla. Yeah, and why did my girl leave with him? That's terrible. (laughs) It's just the worst, Jamie Lannister. Uh, I, I, I mentioned this on uh, our Game of Thrones podcast, the Joffrey podcast, just this summer at the L.A. Film Festival. I got to be within, you know, like 10 feet of the actor, Nikolai Coster Waldo. And I can say this with with no shame. That is one good looking man. He is like you see him and you and you and you never want to see yourself in a mirror again. He is one sharp looking dude. It's impressive. Mm-hmm. So you are going to give up your chair to him before, and he's going to take it away before you even realize what's happening. No, no. Are you kidding? I'm going to, I'm going to rub some pizza on his face so he breaks out like I do. I'm going to lower him. <laughs> I'm going to make him look as ugly as I do. That'll teach him. <laughs> what about your number three best scene of season seven of Game of Thrones, Papa? Well, Matt, we need to stay positive. We got to stay positive. And... If we were doing this about season six, there was a character just barely introduced in season six, really kind of introduced in just two episodes and two minor scenes in both episodes. That is a guy I like to call Uncle Euron Greyjoy. He didn't leave much of an impression outside of his rather ridiculous plan to build a thousand ships. And you would look at season six and say, what is all this about? The actor has always been great. I first got to know him uh, here in Los Angeles. They played his Danish show, Borgen, on the public 
TV channel out here, and everybody said it was great, so I watched him in that. And so I knew he was a good actor. And give the showrunners credit, they found a way to make Uncle Euron work. He really was funny. He brought a spark to all his scenes and tied to Uncle Euron. We have had some really, I think, poor boat work on this show, too. You watch a a much less expensive show like Vikings, they're able to make some of these boats seem believable. Of course, they have boats actually floating on real water, so maybe that helps. But I've, I've always thought the effects work on Game of Thrones has been tough about that. And so what does Game of Thrones do? They film it at night, so it's easier to hide that this isn't a real boat on real water. And then they stage an incredible battle on that in the, just the second episode of the year, a battle which also has character stakes. The Theon uh, pulling a, a reek and jumping overboard in that battle was an incredible, great emotional moment. Once again, what a great way to end a final scene of an episode to get you hooked. The second episode of season seven, loved it. Uncle Euron Greyjoy, so good, so life. He brought a spark to the show. There, there's a minor nitpick in this in that he was actually very funny. I found all the jokes that the character made throughout season seven very funny. But suddenly in that final episode of season seven, oh, we can't have Euron making any funny jokes about our lovable un- Uncle Tyrion. So suddenly they had to make his short joke kind of a lame joke so that he would appear lame when he confronted Theon and Tyrion Lannister in the dragon pit in the final episode, season seven, where I just thought, just keep him funny. Keep him sparkful. You know, keep him that that jolt that the show needed, the new energy that he brought to the show. I thought creatively the way they resurrected this character who – Probably didn't make much of any impression in season six. I thought it was great. So I'm calling it Uncle Euron's Redemption and tying it to that great sea battle. I thought that was the third best thing about season seven of Game of Thrones. Very nice. Very nice. And I I agree. Not so much from the Euron perspective, but uh, for me, the reclapse was a great kind of moment of, of just like, oh, you just it's its a slap your forehead moment you know it's just like oh come on theon uh and i i love that but it also gave credibility to the character of euron because there was no way that theon was going to go up against him um and and it made a nice setup for for the end of the season when uh theon was doing some things with uh in in terms of trying to save his sister Yara. So we'll be talking about that in just a moment. For me, my number three best scene was the death of Littlefinger. I love the way that that Sansa called Littlefinger out on everything that he'd been doing. And of course, as I said, most of my favorites are somewhat Arya related. And the fact that Arya was just so cold and, and, and just totally slashed his throat right at the moment where, you know, just as he's trying to plead, she just doesn't even give him the chance. I thought that that was fantastic. The whole scene to me was just great. I thought that uh, uh, just a fantastic job acting out those last moments of of desperation when he suddenly realizes the game is up for him. He's got to try and beg his way out of something as opposed because we've never seen Littlefinger beg before. 
this this was all just a, a fantastic moment for me. I love the moment. I know some people have trouble with how they get to the moment in the show, but I think the specific moment, you're right, Matt, it works. Aiden Gillen gives a master class in acting in all the ways he's trying to get out of this no-win situation. I think you always talk about how on the show, George R. R. Martin as a writer as well as the showrunners always try to take away, quote-unquote, a character's strength. Jamie Lannister lost his right hand, so he couldn't fight with his sword. What was Littlefinger's strength? His strength was scheming and his tongue. And so when you slit his throat, you're taking away his greatest strength. I would say that so many times you want the girl to swipe right, but when Arya swiped right, it was the end for Littlefinger. So great moment. <laughs> Loved it. Perfect. That's awesome. Uh we got to now go to our, our, our third worst or third least favorite scenes. Yeah, and so what, what was yours, Matt? You've been so positive. I can't believe you actually have more worst favorite things. I actually do. I actually do. Um, I, you know, at the end of the episode where Jamie was going to try and spear Daenerys and uh, a, a mysterious figure suddenly jumped out of nowhere and got him out of the way of the dragon's breath, out of Drogon's fiery breath. And then you see the shot of Jamie Lannister sinking, you know, a good 60 feet at a very fast clip, going all the way to the bottom uh-huh. of the ocean. And then all of a sudden, in the very beginning of the next episode, whoa, there's Bronn. He's with Jamie. They're in two feet of water. And... Not only that, but the whole battle is seemingly more than a mile away. Uh, it just didn't make any sense to me from a logistical standpoint that Braun, first of all, could have even gotten Jamie up off of the bottom of that 80-foot deep river <laughs> and then got him to a place where he could swim. Uh, not only that, uh, it, it just it just... One thing that really actually made me angry was seeing Braun turn on Jamie at that moment. I understand if he might have been frustrated or whatever, but Jamie was still providing him with more than anything. And that even feeds into the fact that, you know, Braun later hooks up with Tyrion and makes them meet up and everything. Uh, this was the moment that just made me not like Braun. And I've always liked liking Braun. Matt, would you believe that? Instead of Jamie Lannister sinking in what you call as a hundred foot of water, which turned out to be a river, not a lake or a pond, but would you believe he hadn't actually sunk that far? It's just the cinematographer was using a real long lens, you know, so he had really only gone down like five inches. And so the cinematographer is to blame. Uh, Well, (laughs) Either way, my 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 expectations were disappointed because the guy uh, at the rate that Jamie was dropping, uh, it seemed to be made it seem much deeper. And in that case, then Dave and Dan once again over accentuated uh, the realism. Oh yeah, it was it was ridiculous. Now I. Spoiler alert, listeners, uh, many years ago I sold a screenplay, which turned into a very terrible 
horror movie, which you occasionally could see late at night on <laughs> terrible channels that didn't want to spend any money to run a good movie late that, at night. That, that would be Channel 11, right. uh, KPLR TV, KPLR TV on, uh, in St. Louis, yes. So I see things like this, and I have to be honest, my solution when I saw this, because you're right, it made no sense to open up the next episode and Jamie and Braun are just down the river. My thought in this was I tied it to something that happened later in the exact same episode. In the exact same episode, Tyrion suddenly has to sneak himself into King's Landing to talk to Jamie. He couldn't send a note or anything. It was just so ridiculous. So I, I'm rewriting it as I'm watching the episode in my head, and I'm thinking, you know what? Why not just have Tyrion be the one who had some of his Dothraki writers pull Jamie and Braun out of the river? He, is, he would let Jamie and Braun go, and you would say, well, that isn't realistic. But Tyrion would say, you know what? I was in prison, and I was going to be killed in King's Landing for people thinking I killed his grace, King Joffrey. You let me go, Jamie. Here, it's payback. You have the scene that they have later on in King's Landing. You have it at the beginning of the episode. You show that Tyrion, behind Daenerys' back, releases his brother and Braun. Then... When Daenerys, uh, you know, starts snapping at Tyrion, when Daenerys keeps saying, your family, your family, she would have had a real reason to be upset because he just left a great prize escape. And then you wouldn't have had to have Tyrion sneak into King's Landing, which should have been such a momentous occasion for him, which, of course, he then just does. He's back in King's Landing two episodes later, so it kind of made it pointless. So, uh, yes, I had the same problem with the scene. In my head canon, I've somehow found a way around it that kind of works for me. But uh, who knew that armor could also be used as a flotation device? <laughs> now, Bubba, I'd have to ask you, honestly, now, are, were, you, were you more mad about the fact that, that Tyrion's people didn't fish Jamie out because that's what you predicted? Or, no, or... no, 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 no. I, I uh, to, to be honest, I... I I didn't think Jamie would die, but I'm, I have to be honest. I'm in the week between the two episodes. I'm not sure in my head I came up with a brilliant way how he would have gotten out. All right. Fair you know, enough. I thought maybe Daenerys would have used the Drogon to fish him out. You know, go in and bite that guy and pull him out. I don't know. <laughs> oh, right on. Very good. Well, what about your worst number three scene? Well, I talked about Uncle Euron and the sea battle and Theon's moment in that sea battle and how much I loved it. That was my third best scene moment thing about season seven. So my third worst goes to the end of season seven. Listen, all the story threads are coming together. Season seven ends with the wall coming down. This is it. This is it for real. This is the story. Yes, there may be little side stories about, oh, what's Jamie going to do when he finds out – how is the North going to react to Jamie when they find out Cersei betrayed them? Or, okay, Cersei's going to get the Golden Company to kind of hold on to the Iron Throne. There are these little side stories. But then there's something even lower stakes. Theon rescuing Yara from Uncle Euron. Let me say I love all three characters. I think Theon – has been redeemed, and he's an interesting character. I think Yara has grown and become an interesting character. And like I said, I think Uncle Euron, this season seven, they made it work. But to give this 
what I can only call side quest, which is exactly what it feels like. Kind of like, well, Theon, you need some redemption arc to finally, you know, to go the full redemption rather than the many redemptions you've had so far, Theon. So we're going to give you this arc to rescue your sister. It seems so tangential and so pointless. And then to get there by having Theon have to have a battle with, quote-unquote, the next biggest Iron Island chief leader pirate, where Theon takes several kicks to his uh, what used to be his junk, his junkless crotch, when Theon has to headbutt a guy into submission. Watching that, I was like, get it over with. This was pointless, and it was to set up a story I wasn't excited about. I hate to say it. Theon, Yara, and Uncle Euron, despite me liking all of them, I'm already calling some of my worst stuff of the final season eight of Game of Thrones. Ugh, I can't take it. Bubba, I I am shocked. I am appalled. Uh, th- this hatred, you you are just lashing out against everything. You're you're going against CGI direwolves. You're going against Unix. I mean, where where does it end, Bubba? Where does it end? My well-known anti-Unix bias has really come out in these podcasts. I, I, I I'm just I just have more to say about the worst stuff instead of the best stuff. Uh, you 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 hate Theon. Let's let's face it. God, I, just just admit it. You hate Theon almost as much as Ramsey. Yeah. Okay, almost as much as Ramsey. Very good. <laughs> oh, very good. Let's move on to our number two best. Let's and do it, baby. I mean, this one for me. I'm just gonna go for it. I'm just gonna throw it out there because this was fantastic to me. This is women being empowered in in a season where women were empowered and had power taken away from them, where they were suffering the same stakes as the men in this show, uh, which was something that I really admired in season seven of Game of Thrones. But this was the total empowerment of women where we had Arya and Brienne practicing once against once one another there, there's this moment where Maisie Williams does this knife twist with her left hand. And granted, she's right-handed. She's doing this, and she does this incredible uh, twist with her left hand of the knife. This girl has really practiced in order to be the character of Arya, who is left-handed. Uh, and that scene was just so beautifully put together. And just the sheer glee that you see on Gwendolyn Christie's face and on Maisie Williams's face as as they are just going at each other and, and and you really feel those characters just totally enjoying that moment where, whoa, this girl can beat me. Oh, this is awesome. I absolutely love that. I, I just I fist pumped through that whole scene when I saw it for the first time on HBO. I couldn't agree with you more, Matt. I 100% agree. A great scene. I want to say the infamous showing versus telling. Yes. We want to show that Arya has learned all these skills after all these years of training, after all of these mentors. You know, yes, you can quote unquote show her killing the house, Frey. And I loved that moment at the beginning of season seven. But the one thing about the infamous House of Black and White face swap is at a time it can come across as too easy. 
oh, I just put on somebody else's face, tricked you, dang, you're dead. But to show how skilled Arya Stark is in a realistic fight, and that certainly must be hard to stage with the two actors, just physical difference between Gwendolyn Christie and Maisie Williams as Arya Stark, Gwendolyn Christie as Brienne of Tarth. It was wonderful. It was perfect. It, it was great. It was a great, great moment that you have as your third best moment of season seven and didn't make my list. <laughs> well, Maisie, I mean, she practically, what, comes to Brienne's knees? She practically comes to Gwendolyn Christie's knees? And, and, and the camera angles were fantastic for that. Yeah. That's why. Speaking of, of digital effects, as I did when I ripped those uh, composited direwolves into that scene. Missandei, Missandei, Missandei. They had to do a face swap from the stunt woman who did that awesome kick up off the ground onto her feet. They had to map Maisie Williams' face onto that. I thought they did a great job. It, it was just a perfect moment in a really good episode. Yeah, absolutely. What about your best number two? This is number two, and I can feel some pushback. Once again, people write out to us on Twitter. Talk to us here on the film list. Go to uh, If you want to hit me with longer things to tweet, go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash double P podcast. But because of my history as a writer, I love things that I think are well written. And even though so many people had trouble with the Arya Sansa fighting and kind of arguing at the end of season seven. I have to be honest that the initial little finger ploy to drive a wedge between the two Stark sisters, I thought was brilliant. Hide having little finger hide the note that Sansa sent back in season one specifically so that Arya would find it. I thought that was ingenious. That was a brilliant moment that would, incredibly upset Arya, the character we know. That would have Sansa be like, oh, wait, that's you don't understand. That isn't what it looks like. I thought it was a great moment. Littlefinger is a character who, he had his swan song in season seven. You need to show Littlefinger, who's been so smart throughout the series, being smart. And and in some ways, sadly, this might have been Littlefinger's only smart moment in season seven. But I, I thought that was uh, that was just a brilliant choice by the writers because, once again, I, I don't think George R. R. Martin has gotten this far along or even intends to have Littlefinger go out in a, a similar way. So the fact that the writers came up with that specific moment of hiding this note in his mattress specifically so Arya would find it, I thought I thought it was brilliant. I I did too, and to be honest. Uh, I had crazy speculations that actually uh, Arya and Sansa were trying to drive Littlefinger to do this so that they could expose him and that kind of thing, and it was turned out to be wrong. If you uh, if you read articles, you you see from Isaac Hempstead Wright, who plays Bran, that there actually was a scene written and possibly shot. I'm not sure if it was shot or not, but there was a scene written where Sansa actually feared for her life from Arya. And uh, Bran explained to her what Littlefinger was doing because he is, of course, the three-eyed crow. Um, that I, I feel like the inclusion of that scene uh, 
would have made it even more brilliant to point to Littlefinger's plan. But uh, at the same time, I'm glad that they left it out because it leaves some open speculation uh, among fans uh, in terms of, uh, well, at what point since Bran and, and, and Arya and Sansa had that scene early on in the season where at the tree um, and he gave the knife to uh, Arya, I, I love the fact that they left it open to where you can make up your mind as to whether something changed Sansa's mind or whether uh, that was the plan all along. Of course, now we know because of this context that the writers actually intended it to be this wedge that was actually driven between the sisters. Uh, and that makes your point about it being uh, one of the best scenes. I love that scene with Maisie following him around, him talking to the different guys and everything, and, and just planting all of these seeds of suspicion in, in Arya's mind. Um, I right. think that that is a great scene. Matt, if I could jump in a bit further on this. So I think a lot of people didn't mind that moment. It's just that theoretically that one moment spirals out of control and the Stark sisters fight so much. I think the way you could have made this work a bit better is okay. Littlefinger knew exactly how to get Arya suspicious of Sansa. If the writers had given Littlefinger an equally intelligent and devious way to get Sansa to be suspicious of Arya rather mm. than just Sansa hearing, oh, Arya's got this list or, oh, Arya can fight Brienne. Like if Littlefinger had kind of done it both ways, then I think people would have been more willing to accept the fact, well, why don't these sisters just talk this out? But because they didn't do that, I will I will accept anybody who says that that fight between the sisters after this episode didn't make too much sense. I, I, I will agree with anybody of that, that, well, why aren't they just talking this out? But uh, that specific moment, you, you know, Littlefinger deserved a great moment and he, he had a pretty darn great death, but I, I, I loved a great Littlefinger moment earlier in the season. And so that's my number two best moment of season seven. Right on. Well, why don't we go straight to your uh, worst number two of season seven? So I mentioned earlier when I was talking and, and, and was just filled with fury about the infamous direwolf wasted potential I found of that scene. Oh, calm down. Calm down. Calm down, Bubba. Calm down. Miss Sunday. Oh, man. Apologize to any listeners who don't like me being calm by lovely Natalie Emmanuel. But uh, wasted potential goes to my number two worst moment, and that is Old Town. Why did we do this? Things shouldn't be easy. I know that that you had a big problem, Matt. One of your worst moments you were just talking about is, okay, we need one white so that we can grab it. Oh, we killed a white walker. Everybody dies, but there's this one white. Oh, how easy is that? Well, how easy was friggin' Old Town? Oh, Jorah, you've got grayscale? Next episode, you're cured. Okay. Oh, Sam, we need to find some stuff in books. Oh, here's what we need right here. Oh, Gilly, you're just reading kind of the one passage about Prince Ragger. Oh, great. Old Town, I love Jim Broadbent, who played uh, Arch the Archmaester. But Old Town, for how much time it took, it took Sam a season to get there. Hmm. 
for him to not even stay, he stayed what I guess five episodes. I, you know, it, to me there there wasn't much juice from that squeeze, and so Old Town, we hardly knew you. We barely saw the library. We barely saw the town. Uh, frustrating. Didn't seem like much. Old Town, my number two biggest disappointment, worst moment of Game of Thrones season seven. Wow. 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 Uh, let me ask you this, Boba, and, and, and please be completely honest with me because, you know, you've never, ever been honest with anybody about your opinions about this show. <laughs> um, are you tainted a little bit by the tease of the end of A Feast for Crows um, that makes it feel like that you would have liked to seen uh, more intrigue or different characters that you might find in the books that didn't show up in season seven of Game of Thrones at Old Town? Uh, Matt, in a word, no. Really? Not at all. I say what you will, you know, maybe Sam isn't my favorite character. Maybe Gilly isn't my favorite character. Maybe this Archmaester didn't turn out to be especially wonderful. But it's kind of like, why? Why give Jorah grayscale if it's, okay, now you're cured? Why send Sam there if, what did Sam really learn there? I mean, this is, uh, tell me, what did Sam learn that's going to help in the fight in Old Town? He learned that there was dragon glass on Dragonstone. Well, Stannis told him that. Uh, he learned uh, how to cure grayscale. Is that going to help in the fight against the White Walkers? Eh, I don't think so. Did he learn about Jon Snow's, uh, or did he kind of indirectly through Gilly learn about Prince Ragger? Well, yeah, but theoretically, Bran could have found that out at any time. What did Sam learn? Help me out. Anybody, tell me. What was the point? Why, why did he go? Maybe maybe in next season, he'll be like, oh, this book we brought back, this says something good. But right now, it feels like, eh, that's it? So, number two on my list of the worst stuff. Well, uh, Bubba, once again, I, I must just caution you that that you really need to uh, seek a little bit of therapy because now you're picking on nerds as well as CGI wolves, as well as eunuchs. Um, it seems like you're really lashing out. You have become a Trumptarian. You need to uh, really be careful with this. I, 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 I urge you well, I to love... really kind of take a little bit of self-inventory here uh, and, and, and just think about, uh, think about how you're horrifying us listeners uh, with these uh, lashing out at the week. Right. You know what I love is I'm attacking myself. You know, nerds, you went to college. <laughs> what did you learn? You know, uh, these direwolves don't look too believable. I look in the mirror. I don't look too believable. I mean, I am really, my self-hatred is on display. I apologize. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Uh, well, you, you, you do need you do need a little bit of, of, of a boosting in that area as well. Uh, as far as my uh, number two uh, worst or least favorite scene, um, I, I just really hate, I really hate bad gags. I hate bad gags. And this was one <laughs> You're going to hate all my jokes in this podcast. All right. Yeah, the, 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 the stupidest gag in the whole season for me was the hound throwing rocks at the whites. And then all of a sudden, oh, wait. Now the whites realize they can come forward. What's going on with that? I mean, is there, couldn't there be 
You've got this Night King who can throw a spear through a freaking dragon. Isn't he going to be smart enough to know whether the ice is frozen or not and just send them forward anyway? Do you really need rocks hitting skeletons in order to make that scene happen? Um, it, it just really irked me. I'm like, I'm like, man, you know, this, this is, this isn't even SNL funny. This is just, this is just stupid. This is Flintstones funny. And granted, some Flintstone stuff is funny, but not this. I really was bothered uh, by the fact that the Hound uh, was being so childish after having such a realizing moment. I mean, you see the Hound grow up so much in that very first episode of season seven with all of this stuff about you know, the house and where him and Arya were and this family that he just inevitably or indirectly killed. And now he's throwing rocks at skeletons. It it just really bothered me. Matt, I could not disagree with you more in that the Flintstones was never funny. (laughs) So now you're lashing out against children. Oh, that's fine, Bubba. Uh, Listen, I just say yabba dabba don't. Um, uh, <laughs> Matt, I, I had bigger problems with the scene uh, than uh, the rock hitting the skeletal zombie white in the head. I kind of didn't mind it hitting the skeletal white in the head. But yes, the whole uh, wait now, the, now it's frozen. Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm with you. Ouch. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that just really didn't work for me at all at all and i suppose uh when you look at it like that you can say that there are there are lots of things that are wrong uh with game of thrones particularly the way that you look at some characters for instance does aegon targaryen aka john snip look like the guy who is perpetually getting bad news from his mechanic well i would say he looks like that but he couldn't see over the hood of the car because he's so short. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, what about his uh, not mother? Does Catelyn Stark look like a chaperone at a high school dance who notices a couple who is dancing too closely and places a balloon between them and says, don't forget to leave room for Jesus. Yeah, that is uh, the look she gave to Robin to Lissa a lot. And uh, that that balloon popped at a certain wedding. So uh, I agree, Matt. You are you are nailing these people a bit too harsh. R.I.P. Cat Stark. <laughs> R.I.P. Cat Stark. Uh, honorable mentions. You were totally uh, with your anti-unit rant. You were you were totally uh, going against my brother Theon and his total redemption. Uh, and nothing could have been more accentuated than by the music that Ramin Javadi played underneath that scene, the way he took the Greyjoy theme and turned it from something that was getting twisted and you just didn't know whether the redemption was going to reoccur or whether Theon was actually going to redeem himself. The music underneath that where it was so tense until the fact that it was presented that uh, nothing the guy could do could really hurt Theon in that area, which I, I admit that doesn't really work uh, because it's still there's still some kind of pelvic bone there that can be hurt. 
But nonetheless, the fact that Theon came back from that and the the absolute amazing presentation of the Greyjoy theme in the major key, uh, which I discussed on podcast Winterfell, whatever, 360-something, uh, in, in when I did the uh, all of the music of the finale. Um, that was one of the greatest moments of the whole episode for me musically, and it really made me feel for Theon in that scene. So that that's my honorable mention uh, for one of the best scenes in the episode, despite the hatred that you have lashed out. I'm I'm glad you keep reminding the listeners of my hatred towards that scene. I was worried I'd have to do it myself, but thank you, Matt. Uh, my honorable mention for season seven. So this isn't one of the five best moments, people. So just so we're all on the same page. But my honorable mention is a guy you've heard me. You've heard me chill out when I hear Masande. But anytime Tormund raises an eyebrow, I just think hashtag role model. That is a great look. I, it's not working on Brienne. It doesn't seem to work on anybody but the viewers. So Tormund, yeah. Tormund, my wildling role model, it's my honorable mention for season seven. I just keep waiting on Tormund Giant Spain to hit a Grand Slam home run. That's what I keep waiting for because he is definitely It's going to happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> what about worse? Uh, the, as far as the honorable mentions go, uh, Bubba, do you have an uh, honorable mention for worst scene in the season seven of Game of Thrones? Okay. Now, I certainly might get some brushback, speaking of uh, baseball analogies here. But as much as I love the lovely actress Natalie Emmanuel, who plays Masande, and I really enjoy Jacob Anderson, the actor who put, portrays Grey Worm. For me, and hopefully only I feel this way, hopefully listeners you don't, but the Grey Worm Masande romance has just never really worked for me. It's worked for me as well as the Anakin Padme relationship in the Star Wars prequels has worked for me. And it's not because of the actors, it's just because it always feels, once again, like small potatoes. I think rather than giving them sexy time scene, which maybe some people enjoyed. I, you know, this is just me. I think it always would have worked better as a constant longing in just a silent scene of them looking at each other as Grey Worm's boat pulls away from Dragonstone. I think that would have been just as strong. And so rather than that, what felt like a long love scene between them in the second episode of season seven, I would have done with anything else. So an honorable a dishonorable mention for that Grey Worm Masande HBO After Dark scene. <laughs> and once again, Bubba, I mean, I mean, really, we, we really, after we finish this podcast, me and you really need to sit down and talk. I mean, you, you've shown such a prejudice against eunuchs in this episode. I, I, I'm, I'm just ashamed, uh, and uh, I, I'm shocked. I'm flabbergasted. Uh, we really need to sit you down and have an intervention with you. <laughs> you are you are spreading such hate uh, among the world right now. Okay. Uh, worst, <laughs> my worst uh, dishonorable mention 
would be uh, a scene that you brought up earlier as one of your not favorite scenes, and that is uh, with Ed Sheeran and and Arya. Um, that totally took me out of the moment as well. I didn't quite make it as into my top five as it did to yours, uh, but I agree with you totally there. Now we're to the number ones, though. Now, this, now we've as the numbers get smaller, the moments get better or yeah, worse. We, or worse. We don't know which. Uh, depends on which. Let's do our worsts first, actually. Yeah, let's end on a positive note. So let's start with a negative note. Yes, we'll start with the negative note, end on the positive note. Uh, I will go first. And uh, as on any filmless podcast, uh, if you've listened throughout the years, you will totally understand what I mean by pulling an Anna, which means taking uh, a number of things and putting them all in a tie. Uh, any Sand Snake scene, save the uh, Alaria Tyene one at, where Cersei poisoned Tyene, uh, I thought that that was the best Sand Snake scene uh, in the whole series. But uh, any of the others, uh, I am simply just done with the Sand Snakes. And this is, I will admit, is a book reader prejudiced because I felt like the television show never gave the Sand Snakes the power that they truly um, deserve to have represented on the television show. Uh, and this last one... When you have like Alaria and Yara kind of trying to get it on and Yara and Theon still in the room, uh, anything from that to uh, just the other Sand Snakes just playing their stupid little hand games and not really it not meaning anything. They get all out to fight um, one or two good shots of them actually fighting, which didn't happen in season five, it, but they did get a couple of good scenes in uh, season seven, um, or at least a couple of good shots, but all for not. I mean, it was a complete waste of what I still feel in the books will be a uh, decent storyline, maybe not to much of the same, uh, or not dissimilar to the end that they get to in the television show, but nonetheless, much more compelling in the books. I'm looking forward to George um, writing them as well as they did in A Feast for Crows and in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, and I was extremely disappointed by the Sand Snakes. And so every scene except for Alaria and Tyene when Cersei uh, poisoned Tyene. And that was actually more on Lena Headey's performance. Although I will admit that last shot of Alaria and Tyene reaching for each other, um, that was the first time that I felt anything for any of the Sands. Uh, in the entire series. Uh, so that was a good one to go out on. But all of the other ones, rubbish. Matt, your hatred of women who refer to themselves as snakes is new to me. That's <laughs> now, now that I know. Okay. All right. Now I know. All right. Uh, I always had a bit of a soft spot for the sand snakes. It's almost as if I felt sorry for that they were always given nothing to work with. So. I'm nowhere near as negative as you are on those scenes, Matt. So uh, I think the people are with you. I don't think they're with me, but I'll just <laughs> do the counterpoint of, eh, the Sand Snakes weren't really that bad. People, chill out. All right, all right. Well, what is your number one worst scene or uh, plot line of Game of Thrones Season 7? Matt, I wish I could be unique. I wish I could come up with thoughts that aren't the thoughts 
that every single podcast, reviewer, critic, watcher, uh, casual viewer thinks when they see it. But the quote-unquote plan to catch a White Walker, to prove to Cersei that the threat is real and therefore we have to stop our fight, everything about it was ridiculously, utterly stupid. And rather than just rehash what I think many people know was stupid, once again, I mentioned I'm a rider and, you know, okay, it's backseat driving, backseat riding. But I was just thinking, how could you make this work? Say, and let's imagine this is true, that they've been given bullet points by George who says, well, okay, so what's going to happen is the Night King's going to get a dragon, then he's going to use that to destroy the wall. And so that's that's the bullet point George has given to you, but he hasn't explained exactly how it happens because he hasn't figured it out because he's a gardener. He likes these things to grow. He knows that's the tree he wants to grow, but he hasn't figured out you know, how he's going to plant those seeds to make it happen. How could this kind of sort of work? Well, first of all, what was the point of building this super team, of grabbing Gendry so he could go north if really all he's going to do is run? What's the point of saving Jorah from Grayscale if he's going to go just so he can survive, like if there's no kind of stakes? So what I was thinking is, well, all right, what if it wasn't so much a plan for Cersei? Because even if the characters think it might work for Cersei, the viewers know that's a stupid idea. Cersei will never give up the throne just because of, oh, there is this army that might get south of the wall, that might attack the north. That would never work. So it always should have been in my, you know, once again, my writer's cap. It should have been Daenerys. Daenerys wants to believe, but she can't. And John's like, listen, if you could see the problem for yourself, you would know. And so just a couple episodes earlier, you had Tyrion and all of Team Danny saying, Daenerys, you can't hop on a dragon and go try to find Euron's fleet. They could be anywhere. It would be a wild goose chase. You need to be here. What if John is like, listen, if you could see it, you would believe it was real. And Team Daenerys, the same people would, would just make the same argument. We can't have Daenerys flying around the north for days trying to find these things, which you say could be anywhere in the north. John, you tell you know John. John would then say, "Well, what if I found them? What if I brought some ravens from Dragonstone with me and just give me some people? I'll go find them. And once we find them, we'll send some ravens to you, so then you can come and know exactly where to go to to find, you know, to find these White Walkers, so you can see it for yourself." It, it's still relatively dumb. But then at least it's the idea of convincing Cersei isn't on the table. And so it's really John is just going out to find them, not necessarily to grab one and bring it back to convince Cersei. He's just going out so that then he can signal Daenerys, okay, I'm going to build a fire. This is where you can come see these zombies and monsters, which I say are real are real. Then you don't really have the attack until Daenerys is already there. They built an attack, which you mentioned earlier. Rather than having the tension build and build and build and build and build, they're surrounded, and then the tension has to dissipate as they all sit around for who knows how long for the lake to freeze and who knows how long for Daenerys to show up. And so if you built it that way, I'm still not sure it would have been 100% perfect, but then you don't have so many characters acting dumb. You know, John's plan really isn't to go anywhere near the White Walkers. He just wants to find them from afar. 
send the raven, put up a fire, and then and then when Daenerys comes, that's when you know stuff hits the fan. And then the white, you know, the Night King could still kill a dragon. Our heroes could still just barely escape. That way, there isn't this kind of tension destroying moment of okay, we're all going to stare at not the grass growing, but the ice freezing, for what feels like the characters did for several days. Then, long story short, then Daenerys sees it's real. Then you have Daenerys having a change of heart where she kind of, I guess, does have a change of heart at the end of that infamous episode. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I, to me, that's the way you can kind of sort of make this work and still hit the exact same beats, but not have your characters seem like complete idiots. The, I haven't thought long and hard about it, but that was just in my own writerly way. I'm like, well, you still want these beats to hit. How could you do it? That's what I came up with. If you want to tell me that my idea is terrible, too, I, I would say it's less terrible. But that was just such a soul-draining moment that it felt like the end of the season ended on a thud. Where the end of season six, say what you want to about season six, it ended on two great episodes that left you on a high. Season seven for me, and I think for many viewers, ended on a thud. To me, that might have made it work. I I can see that. You know, I, I think that I would much have rather watch your show than um, the one that I got. Uh, I I personally, as a book reader, and knowing just how crazy Cersei can be, uh, at least in the books, I I love the idea that she was trying to turn um, this parlay or this 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 meeting uh, into something to her advantage, um, because that's what a crazy Cersei would do. Um, but uh, at the same time, I I think from a storytelling standpoint. Uh, other than it just being kind of a, a random book shout out into Cersei's character, um, I can see where your idea would work much better. But it does bring us to the end, which I did not think was a thud. The wall coming down to me is my number Heck one yeah. best scene. Uh, visual effect wise, uh, in terms of the the suspense, is Tormund and Beric, are they buried under the rubble? Did they get away? Um, you know, seeing all of the whites and the White Walkers streaming through, still mad that we didn't see any ice spiders, but regardless of that, uh, just great, just fantastic. The debate that it created, was the dragon blowing ice so hard that it was tearing the wall apart, or was it such a white, blue blue hot white flame that it was melting the wall down i mean just those kind of little discussions was a great way to end the season um did the wall only come down because bran had passed through it that's still a question that's out there there's all kinds of questions and uh and of course terror that this last scene created and that's why it is my number one favorite scene from game of thrones season seven how about yourself? Matt, that is a great one, and that is a great moment. To me, it is is still too tied to kind of the stupidness of the plan that allowed the Night King to get the dragon. But that individual moment, you are right. It is a way to leave us on a high. It is a way to redeem what some people, myself included, felt were a couple of stumbles. Very good. To me, this is hard to say. Hard to even fathom. To me... 
the season peaked in episode four, The Spoils of War, and the infamous loot train battle, or as it should technically be named, Hard Home Part 2, Hard Home Redux. Yes. So I keep talking about how the battle of the frozen lake kept fighting against itself. Oh my goodness, this wall of whites are attacking our heroes. Oh my God, what's going to happen? What's going to Oh, they fell in the water. Okay. Oh my goodness, they're surround. Okay, well, there's still water. Okay, what's like, okay, they're coming in kind of a monotony fashion. All right, it's frozen. It's monotony. Here comes one. We'll slash it. Here comes one. We'll slash it. These moments weren't great. Tension has to build. And I just want to talk. This loot train battle was so wonderful, even if it repeated hard home almost to a T. Let's talk about it. How does the real trouble start in loot train battle? You have this moment. Bronze, like, wait, what's that? What's going on? Do you hear that? Hey, do you hear that? Everybody get in line. Get in line. What's going on? What's going on? Think of hard home. Hey, what's going on? Why are those cl- snow, those clouds billowing over mm-hmm. the mountains in the distance? What's happening? Hey, anybody, hey, what's going man. on? What's going on? Hey, close the gate. Close the gate. Everybody get close the gate. What's going? What's going? What's going? The exact same buildup, the exact same building up of tension, but they're not going to release it with people falling into a water. What's next? The immediacy of the trouble coming. You suddenly have this wave of people pushing on the gate at hard home, hands bursting through holes. It's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Cut to the loot train bell. Okay, all these horses. Everybody get in line. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Look at all these horses. We're, we're going to be in so much trouble. We're in so much trouble. Yes. Oh, my Lord. Here comes a dragon. Exactly. Suddenly, there's the immediacy of the threat. Both battles just keep going and going and going. There's the momentary victories, quote-unquote, for the people up against unstoppable odds. John has his momentary victory. At the last second, he kills a White Walker and survives. Oh, my goodness, he did it. Think about JB is about to get cut down by a Dothraki. Dickon stabs the guy in the back. Braun is about to be captured by this Dothraki. He's chasing and chasing it, just like John at the last minute has his victory. Braun at the last minute has his victory as he shoots the scorpion through the Dothraki. Yes! But then, this is one of the most fascinating things, is that these are both great action moments, and they both are futile fights. Yes! They can't win. It is over. You are fighting a losing cause in both cases. If you're Jon Snow, if you're Jamie Lannister and the Lannister forces, it's futile. So it's kind of how do you do anything? You also have moments where both heroes see the utter, absolute devastation. Jon, in that boat, he's looking back. Oh, my God, he is screwed. You see Jamie looking over, people turning to ash. There is no dull moment there are no pauses in this battle it goes goes and goes and here's a crazy thing it's not why this is the best moment but this is something that i don't think a lot of game of thrones podcasters out there no no names mentioned but so many game of thrones podcasters they list the wrong thing when they look at this loot train battle they're like you know what nobody died nobody died now sure after the battle we saw a couple of double t's Double T's. Toasted Tarleys. Yeah. <laughs> when they met that dragon fire. But you know what? Yeah, in the battle, nobody died. That doesn't matter. Who died in Hardhome? 
uh, Carsey, a character we just met and really never had her name said in the episode. Uh, Athen, yes. who we met, he died. Hey, who died in the Battle of the Blackwater? Uh, Davos's son. Uh, you want to name another character who died in the Battle of Blackwater? Uh, I'm not sure there are any other named characters who did die in the Battle of the Blackwater. Yes. I mean, you don't need characters necessarily to die, but you need a realistic threat to fear they're in trouble. The This did it. Now let's go to the infamous ice-frozen lake battle here. Who died in it? Well, Thoros was kind of dying anyway, so I guess he died, but before the real battle. You had Tormund possibly going to die. He did it. You had an extra, a couple of extras, I think, die in it. But that did that isn't you know the fact that everybody survived is in the trouble. I mean, let's be honest, Viserion the dragon didn't survive. It's once again you can't dissipate building action. Things have to build, 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 build to a crescendo that happens at the end of the episode. Uh, the Frozen Lake battle didn't have it, but Hard Hay, Hard Home Part Two, the Loot Train battle did. I thought it was great. It was a sit up on the edge of your seat and go crazy moment. And uh, I explained why I think both work on an audience, but forget using our brain. You know, forget using our analytical brain. Let's just go, oh my God, we got Dothraki and dragons fighting each other. Yeah. Fighting against an army. That's incredible. Number one best moment of season seven for me. Hell, seven hells, yeah. Yes! Yes! I, my knees are quaking with your description there. That is fantastic, man, man. That is great. I mean, I was just floored watching Jamie Lannister sink 375 feet to the bottom of a river that doesn't Heck exist. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which made that, uh, that one that I did earlier is worse, even that much worse. But I love that. That's a great number one best moment. But I'm sure that there's lots of great moments that you're talking about with other television shows on the Double P Podcast Network, brother. What kind of shows are you covering right now? And uh, what what's coming up for the Double P Podcast Network? Well, a bit like our Game of Thrones coverage on the Joffrey Podcast, Game of Thrones has the great books, A Song of Ice and Fire by George R.R. Martin, as well as the TV show. So you can kind of talk about both in our coverage of Twin Peaks on our podcast, Twin Peaks, The Gifted and The Damned, we've been covering new Twin Peaks books, including one that is released on Halloween that we'll be covering on in detail. The next TV show we're going to do weekly recaps of doesn't come out until beginning of 2018. It's the great stars comedy horror show, Ash vs. Evil Dead. The podcast there is yes. entitled Ash vs. Evil Dead versus Bubba versus Catfish. If you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash double P podcast, the word double, the single letter P, the word podcasts, podcasts, plural, facebook.com slash double P podcast. You'll find out about all our shows. And this is a podcast born out of that infamous emergency film list podcast which perhaps created podcast winterfell which really is how i met a guy i like to call double m the hero of the podcasting world matt murdoch matt thank you so much for having me on it's been great baba thanks so much for joining me and and re really seriously let, let let's talk after this podcast we need to talk about your hatred i i, I mean uh you know, I, everybody knows you as a fun, loving, uh, fantastic, even-natured guy. But uh, you, you really, you really shook me to my core. This podcast, I, I need to talk to you about this. 
Uh, speak, <laughs> speaking of shaking people to their core, folks, the DVR Podcast Network is definitely shaking folks to their core, listeners to the core, Heck about yeah. a variety of subjects. Uh, there's all kinds of great podcasts coming out from Gareth. Yeah. Uh, coming out from uh, just on, on the HBO show The Deuce. Uh, DJ Tim Hines has uh, his DVR podcast where he just talks about what he's been watching on television. Love it. Please go to DVRpodcast.com. Find all of those podcasts. And if so inclined, if you want that great content to continue, go to Patreon.com slash DVR and become a Patreon patron of the network. Yeah. And don't forget, folks, if you want to send a list to Heath so that he'll do more film lists because, you know, you don't want me doing them all for you all of the time. Or Go me. We're, we're not Heath Solo. You need the real deal. Exactly. Please send an email with your list to the film list at gmail.com and stay in tune to all of the podcasts on the DVR Podcast Network. If you want to talk to Bubba at Fit and Trim, that's F-I-T-T-E-N-T-R-I-M at Fit and Trim on Twitter. And if you want to talk to me, at Musical Concepts. Peace out.